If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It was so humiliating for Britain and such a disaster, embarrassing. And they didn't even, I mean, it was a bad plan and an immoral plan in the first place, but they didn't even achieve it. That was Alex von Tunzelman talking about the 1956 Suez Crisis. And that begins, that kingdom of Northumbria begins the idea of what became England. There it is, one entity reaching out to the whole of that part of the, of the island. And that was Melvin Bragg discussing the north of England, the subject of his new Radio 4 series. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of August 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For our first interview this week, we're heading back 60 years to the autumn of 1956, when the world was shaken by two major events. In the Middle East, the Suez Crisis ended in disaster for Britain, while in Hungary, 
the Soviet Union ruthlessly put down an attempted uprising. These two moments both feature heavily in Blood and Sand, a new book by historian and author Alex von Tunzelman. She spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton. So firstly, I guess really, uh, for people who might not know, what events are we talking about in, in this context in 1956? What does your book cover? I've tried to look at the Suez crisis simultaneously with the Hungarian uprising uh, against the Soviet Union. And what I found when I started to research this is a lot of people don't appreciate that those two events, both of which were completely massive events for world security, actually happened in the same fortnight um, and really interacted with each other quite a lot. And the more I looked at it, the more I realised that it was actually the fact those two events were happening at the same time really did push the world to as close as it got to nuclear war between Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Cuban Missile Crisis. This was definitely the point of most danger between those times. Um, it was a very big deal. Uh, you had the Soviet Union threatening rocket attacks on London and Paris, um, and people were very, very seriously scared about what was going to be the result of this. Mm. Um, so there's these two events happening. How, how much were they caused by, by the same, same route? Uh, things like the Suez Canal, for instance. How much did that lead to this general kind of instability, I suppose? I mean, the Suez Canal obviously led to the Suez Crisis, but really the Hungarian rebellion came out of another, it came out of left field as far as uh, people were concerned at the time. Um, there were so many different things happening geopolitically at once, and it was really a coincidence that these things coincided. But once they did, that became extremely fateful. So really the Hungarian rebellion was caused because people were very fed up with Soviet rule. They'd had this incredibly strict, very, very heavily Stalinist Soviet rule in those satellite states in Eastern Europe. Um, a few days before, uh, Poland had had an uprising and had kind of ejected some of the hardcore Stalinists. And then the Hungarians were quite inspired by that. And this was actually happening. So back in February of 1956, Khrushchev had made his very famous secret speech where he had actually talked about de-Stalinization. So there was all this promise of a new kind of freer Soviet Union, but it really hadn't in any way trickled down to the satellite states. So people were feeling pretty fed up with that. And then you had a completely separate issue, which was really about the British and French kind of rule of the world. And really it's kind of a... So it's sort of a tipping point between the period where you really had that old European imperial rule was still going on, Britain and France, you know, really still having a major say in the world, particularly Britain. And then this new kind of world order rising of the United States and the Soviet Union really having a lot more sway, these superpowers rather than empires running the show. And how important are the personalities of individual people? Anton Eden, say, for instance, how, how important is his personality and what unfolded and the way that it unfolded? I think Eden is very important because, you know, he really did make a lot of these decisions. And obviously, it's absolutely right that scholarly work in the last kind of couple of decades has actually pointed out, of course, that there's a massive context for the whole Suez issue. And it's to do with politics across the whole Middle East was undergoing this transformation. And there were all sorts of things going on. It actually has to do with, you know, really the whole of the Middle East places like Jordan and Syria and all sorts of, and Saudi Arabia, all of which were kind of vying for various things. And Israel, of course, being in the middle of all of that. Um, so there's all this huge background going on, which really had nothing to do with Eden. Um, but he personally, of course, had a huge impact as Prime Minister of the UK, and he really set the course. And I think if you look through... Um, really kind of day by day what went on between about March 1956 and the crisis in October, November, you can really see that actually he was, I mean, first of all, he was quite ill during that time. 
Um, and he was clearly becoming more and more fixated on this idea that you had to get Nasser, that Gamal Abdel Nasser, the leader of Egypt, was a personal threat to him. And he really did see this very, very personally as a duel between two men. Are there any other events in the lead up to the period you talk about in the book that you think are particularly key in setting these events in motion? I think a lot of events are really key. I mean, for the French, see, for every nation involved, this is about something different and quite existential. So for the French, this is about the rule, uh, the rebellion in Algeria, which was then going on against their rule. This crisis really brings in an awful lot of the world. <laughs> More countries are involved in it than aren't. Um, and French rule in, you know, had had this kind of colonial rule in Algeria and it was controversial because the French didn't see it as colonial rule. They saw Algeria as part of metropolitan France and all this. But of course, some Algerians disagreed and felt there was racial prejudice and a great deal of difference in how they were ruled from how the European residents there were ruled. Um, so there started to be a rebellion against the French at that time. And the French, again, were completely convinced that Nasser was behind this. Um, and he, of course, Nasser being a pan-Arabist, was, of course, very interested in this rebellion, was indeed funding it and so on, but it did actually exist without him. And the French didn't believe that. They actually believed pretty strongly that if they got rid of him, Algeria would just calm down and the French imperium would be returned to this happy state. So it was just one man they had to get rid of, which is sort of a crazy idea, really, when you think about it. But was incredibly powerful at the time, much like Eden's idea, similarly, that if you just got rid of this one man. So you had these two nations wanting to get rid of him. Um, and of course, they considered assassination attempts and all sorts of things. And the scary thing to look at from through modern eyes when you're looking at this is you really do start being reminded a little bit of the situation in Iraq, because again, you know, this time they didn't succeed. They didn't topple Nasser, as we know, but they had no real plan for what was going to happen if they did. So you talked a bit there about how this was a big shift from the situation where there was imperialism and a kind of world order that had been established for a while. How important is it to understand this in terms of the emotional stakes that countries had in this in this situation? I think it's really important, actually, and it struck me that a lot of, because a lot of these actions are not rational that are done during the Suez Crisis and, and during the Hungarian Rebellion. Often behaviour is very conditioned by it. It's a very heightened atmosphere. Um, and there's really no rational explanation for a lot of what was done. And it does come down to emotion and there are national emotions at play. And that's also very true for the Soviet Union, where there was a very strong sense. I mean, you know, there were competing urges actually initially to liberalise. And then when it got a bit too much, there was a great deal of fear in the Soviet Union about the Hungarian rebellion spreading and they crushed it incredibly brutally. Uh, and that really was about keeping their own control. They were convinced, um, Khrushchev and others in Moscow were completely convinced that the CIA were behind that happening at that time. They thought it was a real threat to not just to Hungary being part of the Soviet empire, but also being really, you know, it was a threat to communism very fundamentally um, and to their whole rule. And actually it wasn't. I mean, if you look at the CIA records as well, there were very, very few. In fact, CIA was very understaffed in Hungary. It really didn't have, I think it had about seven agents in total, um, most of whom were not very reliable. So it certainly wasn't starting the rebellion. It was actually taken by surprise too. But of course, when people convince themselves of this line of thinking, it becomes very powerful. Mm. So what extent did that situation in Hungary push this already volatile situation closer to the brink? It clearly did. And you can see that actually, particularly through now, you can sort of read some of what was going on in the Presidium, the Soviet kind of governing council, um, as well as from the American side and from the British side and the French side, all these different um, points of view. And you can actually see very clearly that um, that Khrushchev is thinking very, very hard about Suez while he's dealing with Hungary. And one of the reasons it became very difficult is, of course, both of these crises were referred to the UN and it became very awkward because really normally Britain would, of course, have 
stood up by the US and condemned uh, Soviet aggression. But since it was actually doing exactly the same thing, it was really unable to formulate a good UN response. And actually you had the US going against Britain and France at the Security Council for the, you know, and, and in the General Assembly for really the first time ever. And you know, people very frightened about what this would really mean. I mean, this was a real danger to that kind of Western alliance, free world alliance, whatever you want to call it. It was extremely perilous. How, how difficult a position was the US in? The US was in an extraordinarily difficult position. And they were trapped between a lot of different competing um, alliances. So, of course, they have Britain and France massively misbehaving and having lied to them about it and continuing to lie to them about it when it was perfectly obvious what was going on. Um, and Britain and France were still saying, you know, well, no, 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 we've got no, this is just a police action, it's spontaneous. And it wasn't spontaneous, they've been planning it, and it was completely obvious they've been planning it. Um, also, Britain and France were using as their means of attack, they were using Israel. Um, and this, of course, was very complicated as well. Now, at this stage, the US and Israel didn't have quite such a solid relationship as they now had, but they still had a pretty solid relationship. Um, and that it had been widely assumed in Israel and by Britain and France that the US would simply not go against Israel in public. And in fact, they did extremely strongly um, impose sanctions and all sorts of things. And the fact is, this was all happening the week leading up to Dwight Eisenhower's second presidential election. So again, everybody had assumed that he wouldn't stamp down on Israel because he would lose the election, of course, if he lost you know, Jewish voters in the United States. And actually, Eisenhower was very clear that he... Uh, didn't care if he lost the election, he was going to do the right thing. What's your take on Eisenhower? I think Eisenhower's a very interesting man. And I mean, I I think in many ways, he's one of the heroes of this story. Um, he was, as I say, he was facing re-election. It was, a you know, been a very kind of hard-fought campaign. He was ahead, but not by so much necessarily as to make it a completely guaranteed situation. And suddenly, just leading up to that incredibly tense moment in American politics, then, you know, suddenly all the world starts going completely mad and, you know, his allies turn against him. And of course, he'd sold himself very strongly. I mean, Eisenhower was, you know, five-star general of World War II and all of this and really seen as one of the great generals of World War II. Um, and out, he, you know, and he sold himself very much on a platform of peace. This was really his mandate. And I think Eisenhower was absolutely sincere about that. His mum was a very dyed-in-the-wall pacifist. And he himself, I think also, despite obviously being a lifelong soldier, had very, very strong inclinations towards pacifism. And that was partly, of course, because he'd seen war and it was awful. And he had seen the newly liberated concentration camps and all sorts of really terrible things in World War II. And he had a very, very strong sense that he was not going to let that happen again. So he'd sold himself on this platform of peace. And then, of course, just leading up to his election, the world kind of moves completely to the brink of nuclear war. Um, and I think it was incredibly hard to handle it. And he had, of course, behind him, he had these, you know, he was, I think, a very reasonable man and very, you know, kind of um, sober in his thoughts, uh, really not inclined to reach for war options if he didn't have to. But behind him were people like the Dulles brothers, Foster Dulles, the Secretary of State, and his brother, Alan Dulles, who was director of the CIA, um, who were really much more militant. And he was having to really manage, you know, the CIA and the State Department and all sorts of people who thought that actually he should just back Britain and France and let them overthrow Egypt and let them destroy Nasser and let them put in a new regime in the Middle East. And actually, at this time, Britain had, in fact, been planning three coups in the Middle East, which were supposed to happen simultaneously against uh, Nasser in Egypt, also to knock over the regimes in Syria and Saudi Arabia. 
Um, and the US had gone along with the idea of Syria. They actually jointly, MI6 and the CIA, had a coup, a coup planned for Syria, which was supposed to hit a couple of days after it actually turned out that we invaded Suez and somebody had just not talked to somebody else and nobody knew this was all going to happen at the same time. So that didn't happen in the end. They had to pull the coup at the last minute. But so, you know, so the CIA had been involving itself in these sorts of activities, um, quite possibly without Eisenhower's knowledge a lot of the time or with minimal knowledge. Uh, they were keen on plausible deniability at this time, which meant not telling the president things that it would be inconvenient if he knew um, and so he sort of had to manage this situation where it became quite clear that a lot of people had sort of known what was going to go on with the British, but nobody had told him. And I think he was extremely angry and still having somehow to present himself as this genuine man of peace. It was an incredible challenge and it's really very impressive that he pulled it off. Hmm. Are there any other characters in this whole story that you think are perhaps unsung or don't get the attention they deserve? I mean, I've tried to look at a lot of the kind of big actors in this story. And the problem is there are so many and there's so many you could look at. I ended up feeling an awful lot of sympathy for the Hungarian rebels who really were hard served by this. And in many ways, um, the fact that they didn't get, I mean, because again, they were put in this situation because these things were happening at the same time. Um, American intervention in Hungary would have been unlikely, but it would have been a lot more likely had Suez not been happening at the same time. Uh, at least some form of aid might have been given to them or something. But they, you know, nothing was given. Um, the US was not prepared to risk helping Hungary at a time this precarious. And so really, you know, these actually very reasonable rebels who didn't want to live under Stalinism, as many of us probably would not, um, really did get crushed and brutalised in the most awful way. And, um and they were desperately pleading that entire time, please help us, you know, where's the UN, where's the US, where are our allies, where are people coming to help us? And, and you know, they didn't, they got, they got stomped on. And I mean, there are some incredible personalities in that, such as Palmaletta, who was um, a Hungarian, he became the Minister of Defence, but actually he was a colonel in the Hungarian army and he was sent out to crush the rebels. And instead he saw them and he thought a bit and he said, actually, no, I'm changing sides. So he took his tank and started defending them instead. And then, you know, it was made the Minister of Defence very, very quickly within a couple of days in this new regime that was much more liberal that was that came into power. Um, and then, you know, I mean, this all happened so fast. A couple of days after that, the Soviets actually kidnapped him. Um, and, and that was the beginning of the end of that. Um, and so, you know, I kind of feel like people like that, he was executed very soon afterwards. And... Really, this is very tragic because these people were really quite decent, <laughs> you know, liberal people who really had a completely legitimate aspiration towards self-government and greater freedom. Um, and they were really abandoned. Yeah. We should talk about some of the days in, in that part of the story. Um, 25th of October, for instance, uh, what happened and how difficult has it been subsequently to actually work out the truth of what happened? It's very difficult. But, and you're still dealing with a situation now as a historian where Soviet records are a problem. Um, there's still considerable restrictions on using foreign policy archives in Russia, for instance. Um, under Putin, those have definitely not got more liberal access to those sorts of records. Um, but we do know a fair amount now and more has come out. And also there are very strong institutes in places like Hungary for the study of this kind of stuff. So the 25th of October is known as Bloody Thursday. And that's a very significant day for Hungary in that what happened on that day, it's still very, very hard to know the precise details of what happened. And there are very contradictory reports. But effectively, a large and peaceful protest 
um, in the main square in Budapest. Um, so you had sort of really thousands of people gathered in that square and somebody started shooting. And it's still not clear today who started shooting, whether it was Hungarian army officers, whether it was Soviet army officers, whether the Soviets were shooting to defend the crowd from the AVH, which was the Hungarian secret security police, whether, you know, who who was shooting is, is still impossible really to know. Um, but we certainly know that a large number of people were killed. And again, there's a huge disparity in terms of the number because the Soviet Union tried to cover this up for many years. You couldn't say there'd been a massacre or anything like that. And eventually they sort of admitted a very small number. Um, other numbers have been quoted up to a thousand people, um, you know, with the Soviets suggesting, I think, 22. It's incredibly contentious what the numbers are. And and it's still hard to tell. And you've got and you've got these conflicting reports, but it's this extraordinary event because, of course, it really, it was brutal bloodshed. I mean, people just gunned down in a square in what had been a peaceful protest. Um, deeply shocking. And it really kind of galvanised people. I mean, Budapest was in the most extraordinary state at this time. And you really did have, you know, battle, pitch battles in the streets and rebels holed up in a few locations, often very, very young people. I mean, a lot of the rebels were teenagers. Some of them were even kind of 12, 13, 14 years old. You know, a lot of, I mean, in the book we have some, you know, even on the cover we have a picture of a child soldier in Budapest because it's very striking when you see how young a lot of these people were. Um, but they were desperate and they were terribly, terribly punished afterwards, those who survived. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to tripartite aggression, to what extent was that expected and what unfolded? Well, it wasn't, wasn't really expected. Um the tripartite aggression is the name we would now give to it because the players in that were Britain, France and Israel. And what happened, and this is the secret plan that they cooked up together, um, and they cooked it up uh, at Sèvres um, a few days before um, in France. And, uh, and and the idea was that there would be, this idea was so crazy that afterwards many people in the British establishment would refuse to believe it possibly happened, even denied it for a very long time. And eventually the truth has come out and it, this did happen. Um, but it is extraordinary that the idea was that um, Israel would invade Egypt and this would be on some pretense. Um, what you had going on at this time, to give you a full context, was there were a lot of infiltration raids into Israel by small bands of either Palestinian or other Arab fighters. Um, And that was a sort of ongoing thing. Israel was coming back to that with reprisal raids into Arab-held territory. And so there was an atmosphere of some tension. But on this occasion, the idea was to fake one of those. So there was going to be... So Israel were going to invade Egypt on the pretense that they were going to root out these infiltrators. Um, In fact, as Ariel Sharon, who was one of the commanders of this campaign, said they're... This where they were invading in Egypt, Sinai, was not where the invaders were coming from. I mean, this was completely um, untrue, and everybody who knew the region would immediately spot this was untrue. But so the idea was that Israel would stage this raid into Egypt towards the Suez Canal across the Sinai Peninsula. Um, Britain and France would condemn it, um, and they would uh, issue a threat that Israel and Egypt both had to stop fighting or they would invade. Um, and although secretly they, of course, have put Israel up to it, um, but they would pretend for the sake of the world that they were responding to a spontaneous invasion. Um, 
with what they would call a police action. So they would then invade and they would make uh, Israel and Egypt would both have to retreat um, a set distance from the Suez Canal. And for the security of the world, Britain and France would selflessly occupy the Suez Canal. Uh, and the plan ultimately then was to, because of course, what because they planned this with Israel, they of course knew that Israel would abide by all their terms, Egypt would not. So the idea is that they would then be able to fight all the way to Cairo and overthrow Nasser eventually. Um, so really this entire plan was a setup and a bluff um, and a rather thinly disguised one. How they thought they would get away with it, I mean, who can possibly say? But this is exactly what actually did transpire. And of course, everybody very quickly spotted that Britain and France, in fact, had been colluding with Israel and that, in fact, this wasn't a spontaneous situation at all. It was entirely planned. And that became very apparent for the sort of comedy reasons almost. And when they issued this ultimatum that, you know, both sides had to withdraw from the canal, well, the fighting wasn't anywhere near the canal at that time. I mean, actually what that meant was that Israel um, was being asked to advance towards the canal to withdraw, the, uh, whereas Israel, was, Egypt was being asked, who was, you know, Egypt, the victim of the aggression, was being asked to withdraw to within its own territory and abandon large amounts of its own territory. So, of course, anybody watching this situation could see that this was nonsense. Um, and the Americans, of course, immediately spotted it. Everybody immediately spotted it. Uh, and initially, the Soviet Union was extremely convinced that the Americans were also in this plot, backing up Britain and France, but actually they certainly were not. Why was it so bungled? It, it seems mad that it was so poorly done. It does seem very mad. I mean, when you look through the military plans, um, the military plans are extremely poor and full of gaps. But actually, the Joint Chiefs of Staff said that repeatedly. I mean, they advised Eden and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were really quite opposed to this whole operation. There's a report they sent Eden shortly before, which really advises that the consequences of carrying this operation out will be terrible. It's quite clear on that. Um, it makes clear that they don't have a good plan, they don't have an exit plan. Eden had all sorts of assumptions, you know, that he was saying, I mean, he had the Joint Chiefs saying to him, look, this is going to be quite difficult, particularly Lord Mountbatten, who was very opposed to it, who was saying, you know, you, you're going to get stuck in there for years. It's going to take you at least a month to fight your way to Alexandria and then what you're going to do it. And Eden was kind of airily saying, oh, absolutely nonsense. You know, the Egyptians will crumble immediately. We'll be in Alexandria in four days. And of course, this wasn't true at all. And his commanders were actually right. So all the advice was don't do it. But Eden actually just ignored all the advice. Um, so you can quite clearly see when you look at the plan that it relied on all sorts of magical thinking, wrong assumptions, which the military were pointing out were wrong assumptions. I mean, you kind of look at this and you think, well, actually, the problem is the plan is not fit for purpose. And then, of course, just a few days before, you know, on the 23rd, 24th of October, just days before this is going to be carried out, they make this agreement with Israel to have this invasion as well. So then suddenly this entire plan, which has been devised as a fairly straight invasion, has to be retrofitted so that it looks like a spontaneous response to aggression. And, of course, it can't because you would behave completely differently in a spontaneous situation. So really, none of this makes any sense. And of course, they have to keep chopping bits off the plan to try and make it look more spontaneous, which A, doesn't work, and B, damages the plan. What, what actually happened when this plan came to unfold? OK, well, so Israel went and invaded. Um, and Israel and Egypt started fighting. But it was very strange. And Nasser immediately was saying to his commanders, you know, what is going on? There are Israelis in the Sinai, but they don't seem to be doing anything apart from whipping up sandstorms in the desert. Why are they hanging around in Sinai? There's nothing there anyway. Um, 
And then it became apparent what it was because Britain and France issued this ultimatum. Um, Britain and France then, of course, they they gave a very short period of time, of 12 hours, that the, that the Egyptians were supposed to withdraw from most of, in large proportion of their territory. Um, the Egyptians were kind of totally uh, sort of amazed by this. And actually, Nasser refused to believe that Britain would do it. He said they can't possibly be behind it because they're not actually dishonourable. They wouldn't do this. And sadly, he was wrong on that point. Um and then Britain began. Britain and France began airstrikes very, very soon after the expiration of that deadline. And in fact, in France's case, somewhat before the deadline expired, which of course again did not make it look very spontaneous. Um, so they began airstrikes on on Cairo. And as usual with this sort of thing, there are an awful lot of claims that oh, these are highly accurate. Nobody's been killed. And of course, that wasn't true. They weren't accurate. Um, in fact, they were so inaccurate that they bombed the wrong airport at one point. They actually managed to blow up the civilian airport instead of the military one. Um, and again, it just hadn't been well planned. People didn't have the right maps. Um, and it turned out the Egyptian Air Force had a much higher capacity than they had thought it would. So uh, they had much more difficulty than they actually imagined they would have doing all this. So they began these airstrikes. And this terrible situation where, you know, Britain is bombing Cairo really for almost no reason. And Eisenhower, I mean, at this point, shouts in the White House, bombs, by God, what is Anthony doing to me? You know, I mean, he can't figure out what's going on. He says, this is completely madness, this situation. Um, so they begin bombing and then, and there's an awful lot of prevarication. I mean, constantly the plan is changing in London, in Paris and everything. The French are very, very, you know, gung-ho and really want to go ahead and grab the canal. The British are getting really scared because the Americans are furious with them. The UN is opposed to them. Meanwhile, the Soviet Union, of course, is seeing all this happening and going, well, everybody's looking that way. It's a pretty good time for us to smash Hungary to pieces. So you have this kind of massive crisis spiralling from this. Um, and the British start thinking, oh, God, maybe we shouldn't go ahead with our amphibious landings and take the canal. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should. And there's a lot of back and forth and everybody's threatening everybody else. And then um, and they do go ahead. I mean, the British do, you know, this is a war, the Suez War. The British do land soldiers, um, as do the French, and and land them kind of at Port Said and Port Fouad at the north end of the canal. Um, and they begin to make their way down and it becomes more and more embarrassing and awful and, you know, none of it can be justified. And then the Soviet Union actually threatened um, rocket attacks against London and Paris. So this is a point which there becomes a nuclear aspect of the situation. Now, when those happen, a lot has already happened that really the decisive reason why Britain and France withdrew was a lot to do with Eisenhower. But they were terrified when this happened. It's very clear. Afterwards, a lot of people were saying, oh, we knew it was a bluff, we knew it was a bluff. But they really didn't. If you look at the time, the problem is they weren't sure. And the Soviets were. This is the problem with, at this time, you know, this very popular theory then of mutual assured destruction was the idea that, you know, the US and the Soviet Union and Britain also a nuclear state, um, France also a nuclear state, that actually having weapons would make you safer and would make you, you know, because nobody rational would strike first because, of course, you would strike back. The problem with this, obviously, was that not all the actors were rational in this situation. The Soviet Union definitely wasn't rational. And so it was actually suddenly became apparent that this was incredibly dangerous. Um, and it all turned out to fail. It bought no one what they wanted. No, it was really a disaster. I mean, the British and the French got about a third of the way down the canal before they had to stop um, because the weight of world opinion was such that they just simply had to. 
Um, then they spent a couple of months kind of mucking around and arguing with the UN. The, this is the first time in history that the UN actually managed to put together a proper fighting force. It's amazingly done by a Canadian politician called Lester Pearson, who actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts at Suez. So they put together a UN force to go and replace the British and French, um, which was intended as sort of transitional. They really, since there wasn't a war to be fought, the entire thing was kind of absurd. Um, so that went in, uh, and then Britain and France eventually withdrew around Christmas 1956. Um, Israel kept a lot of the Sinai, and that became a very difficult situation that the US then had to negotiate out of. And the US actually became extremely, Eisenhower became very threatening to David Ben-Gurion in Israel and really kind of forced them to back out of that eventually at the beginning, early in 1957. Um, So Israel was forced out of that. So Israel didn't end up getting what it wanted either, really, which was sort of more security and control of its borders. Um, Then, of course, you had in Hungary, I mean, the rebellion had been completely crushed and nobody had done anything about that. So that had turned into a disaster. The Soviet Union actually really rolled back, like Khrushchev, he was very heavily criticised over this by Mao Zedong in China. And Mao said Mao was completely unimpressed with the destalinization process, said that Khrushchev had bought this upon himself with all of this liberalism, which was a disaster. So tragically, really, for the whole Soviet Union, you see these small but beginning reforms just get rolled back straight away at that time. So really the repression comes back and it becomes a much more unpleasant situation for a lot of people in the Soviet bloc. Um, So really, this is kind of a disaster in many ways. And of course, Britain doesn't, neither Britain nor France achieves their objectives. You know, Britain wants to overthrow Nasser and have control of the Suez Canal because it's the main conduit for their global trade and particularly for oil. This is all about oil at some level because that is the way that conflicts now run. Um, And they don't achieve that. They don't get control of the canal and Nasser stays in power and becomes a lot more powerful. Uh, France also does not get rid of Nasser and indeed the Algerian rebellion, if anything, becomes far more committed, really ramps up um, over the next year and, of course, ultimately ends in Algeria gaining its own independence. So nobody achieves what they intended. Um, All that this actually does is massively strengthen Nasser and massively strengthen separately um, Soviet control of the satellite states. So really, this is a pretty bad outcome. Um, from Britain and France's point of view. Who who was the biggest winner and who was the biggest loser from all of this? I think the winners really, the people I think emerge as victors really are largely Nasser and Eisenhower. Um, Eisenhower, because actually he really did genuinely set a moral standard and drew a clear distinction between American and Soviet behaviour. Um, he forced Britain and France and Israel to back down, even though that was extremely politically inconvenient for him. He absolutely stuck to his, you know, reputation as a man of peace. Um, He is largely responsible for the fact it didn't become worse um, and didn't really escalate into a world war, which it certainly could have. Um, I think his presence of mind and so on came, you know, really were proved by this. But also, of course, he won his second presidential election. So he emerged as, uh, you know, a sort of resounding majority that actually the American people, despite everyone having said, oh, no, you'll lose the Jewish vote if you go against Israel. In fact, that wasn't true. He was overwhelmingly elected. Um, Nasser, and Nasser, of course, was very much confirmed in power and shown to be, you know, and really it gave him incredible power as a pan-Arabist leader because he 
was always talking before this about imperialist aggression. And of course, some people were quite dismissive about that, said, oh, what nonsense, you know, you're paranoid. And of course, this proved him right. You know, it looked suddenly like all of that sort of talk was entirely justified because we'd gone and done it. <laughs> so, um, so unfortunately, you know, from again, from the British and French point of view, if they wanted to get rid of him, this really did the opposite. This made him enormously influential in, you know, really across, not only across the Arab world, but really across the whole third world. At this time, the non-aligned movement, he was a major figure in that. And that was coming up as a kind of alternative to this binary Cold War situation. And I think it really strengthened that. And uh, of course, he went on to create the um, the United Arab Republic with Syria later on, although that did not hold together for very long. But it made him hugely powerful. It also resulted, you know, as the sort of reverberations that kind of come out from Suez also meant that actually a lot of the Arab countries really became extremely anti-British and French, which was disastrous from the point of view, of course, of oil, from the point of view of influence and all sorts of things. And indeed, you saw the Britain's biggest supporter in the Middle East at that time of Iraq um, went, underwent an incredibly unpleasant revolution fairly shortly afterwards. Um, where the where Nouri Saeed, the Prime Minister of Iraq, who was seen as collaborating with the British and the Iraqi monarchy, were butchered in the streets and dragged through the streets. And a lot of this was really the result of having seen to be collaborators with the British. Is it fair to say this is the last point that Britain was a major player on the world stage? I think that's a difficult question because Britain has still played a role, undoubtedly. But I think what was astonishing about this situation and what I really think Suez shows is that actually when they talked about superpowers in the 50s, they talked about there being three of them that were Britain, the US and the Soviet Union. And after Suez, everyone talked about two. So you can definitely see a shift. Um, it was so humiliating for Britain and such a disaster, embarrassing. And they didn't even, I mean, it was a bad plan and an immoral plan in the first place, but they didn't even achieve it. <laughs> I mean, perhaps something could have been rescued from this if at least it looked effective. But it actually made Britain look incompetent, um, rather petty, uh, stupid and a spent force. And I think it really did reduce our influence globally, you know, quite substantially. And I mean, I do think eventually some of that came back. Um, I, You know, it wasn't a kind of necessarily permanent, but it showed actually that Britain was no longer a superpower in that sense. And that ultimately it had to bow down and do what the US told it. And that was, of course, absolutely fatal for its superpower status. Are there any misconceptions uh, that people have about this period that you would like this book to help correct? I think there are really major misconceptions. And the one I meet most commonly in Britain still is there's still an amazingly strong sense from a lot of people when you say, oh, I'm working on Suez crisis, People's response is, oh, the Americans stitched us up. The Americans betrayed us at Suez. This is still a very strong feeling in Britain. And it's really not justified by events at all. I mean, actually, if you look at the whole kind of procedure of events over that very, very tense summer, a spring, summer into autumn of 1956, the minute that, so the trigger event for all of this was that NASA nationalised the Suez Canal Company, the company that runs the Suez Canal. Um, Although, in fact, before then, both France and Britain had clearly decided they wanted to eliminate him. That was on record and so forth. But this was the hook to hang that on, if you like. And the minute this happened, Britain and France both got extremely belligerent and said, we're going to have to, you know, invade and topple NASA and all of this, which was completely illegal and, you know, illegitimate because actually many countries, including Britain, had nationalised their assets and compensation was being offered. And really, he had a right to do this. 
um, just as other countries did. But anyway, they wanted to invade straight away. And straight away, and you can see it immediately in Eisenhower's first letter um, to Eden then, he says, you know, do not even contemplate it. He absolutely shuts it down. He says, no way should you be using military force. So the Americans begin saying that in July, and they do not stop saying that. The Americans keep saying that all the way through, totally consistently, in private, in public, everything. The only reason that somehow the British managed to convince themselves, particularly Eden, that the Americans would just back them up anyway. So the idea the Americans betrayed us is just not true because actually the Americans were totally straight with us most of the time and did exactly what they said they would do. Problem is our plan was terrible. It's that simple. So, I mean, I do think that we sort of, you know, when we're looking at our own history, we need to be pretty honest about that. This was definitely not our finest hour. That was Alex von Tunzelman. Her book... Blood and Sand, Suez, Hungary and the Crisis that Shook the World is due to be published on the 25th of August by Simon & Schuster in the UK. In the US, it's set to be published on the 11th of October by Harper. You can read more from Matt and Alex in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale. This month's edition also includes articles on the Viking Great Army, Henry V, the Great Fire of London the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, and plenty more. You can get hold of our September issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it might still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take our subscription, we have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. Alex von Tunzelman is also one of the speakers at this year's History Weekends, appearing at our events at both York and Winchester. To find out the full lineups and purchase tickets, please visit historyweekend.com. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Our second interview this week is with Melvin Bragg one of Britain's best-known authors and broadcasters, and the long-standing presenter of BBC Radio 4's In Our Time. Melvin's next Radio 4 venture is a new series entitled The Matter of the North that charts the distinct and fascinating history of the north of England. I paid a visit to Melvin at his London offices a little while back and began by asking him how he intended to define the north in his series. Well, what we mean about the north of England is open to dispute. But we've decided to make an entity of it, and people can question that. But I think it's, we made a fair shot at it. And the first thing I'd like to say, the entity we've made, the shot we've made, is I've got twice as big an economy as Scotland. If it were an independent country, it would be the eighth biggest economy in Europe, and it's probably as inventive as any similar area in the world. And the map we've drawn starts in the north, the far north, across the Roman Wall, Adrian's Wall from east to west, from west Cumbria, the Solway, to the east, Newcastle, Wall's End. And then we go down from Wall's End, uh, down the North Sea to Humber, to Hull. And then we trundle across country, including Sheffield, and we get to just below Liverpool in the Cheshire area, and then up the uh, west coast, the North Sea, back up to the Wall. So it's that chunk, and it contains a lot of massive northern landscape, contains the scene of the great ravaging of the north in 1066. It contains the place where the Vikings came to this country, most specifically and particularly in the north. It contains the place where the Romans made the most intensive military settlement. It contains the place where most of the Industrial Revolution took place, which I think is the greatest revolution that has ever been in the world much greater than the French Revolution or the Chinese Revolution or the Russian Revolution. It contains the place where the idea of nature began to replace the idea of reason in the Lake District, and then the idea of uh, nature turned into leisure, turned into felt walking and climbing and alpine climbing and the rest of it, and and so on. And great thinkers and Coronation Street and the Beatles and on we go. So when, when do you think the North first began to develop its own identity, or has it always had that? Well, the North began the, the English identity. We're there at the beginning. This programme, rather riskily, perhaps, or you might say daringly, depending on how you feel about it, starts in 412 and goes to the present day. The only slight little comfort I have is that when I read history at university, I read modern history, and modern history at Oxford started in 412. <laughs> it did, probably still does, and went up to near the present day. Modern history to distinguish it from classical history, anything to do with the Romans or the Greeks, really. So we start there, and we had many different ideas of how to do it. We thought of doing it thematically, and we thought of doing district to district. We thought of doing it 
through objects and artifacts, like Neil did it. Mm. Uh, but he'd done it, and it would seem to be silly to pinch an idea. And the chronology cried out to be done, because it's just direct chronological development, which helps to reinforce the point that we are making, that the North is a place, which is the answer to your question. Because when the Romans went to 412, there was a period of about a couple of hundred years of warring tribes across the North. The whole thing broke down. Uh, roads began to break down, coinage wasn't coming in, or law and order ceased and so on. Not entirely, but very largely. And what came out of that, speaking uh, briskly really, was the kingdom of Northumbria around well, the northeast there. And that was the first kingdom of the New England. It had conquered or had alliances with every other section of England, right down to Wessex and so on. It could be said to be the first central place in what became, eventually, the New England. And it had three things, three or four things going for it. First of all, they were very good soldiers and warriors. Uh, secondly, they had the cultural backing for it, the Lindisfarne Gospels. I like the idea that the first plank of, uh, the first foundation stone of the English civilization is a book, the Lindisfarne Gospels. They had the Book of Bede uh, about the same time. He wrote 32 books and he is the father of English history, but all, and also the, the founder of the idea that English did have a history, did it through the church, it was English. And they had the great crosses up there, sometimes in what we now call Scotland, multiple cross, but the Gospel's cross, and so on. So you have the basis of monuments, literature, culture, because the Lindisfarne uh, Gospels is heavily uh, illustrated, fantastically illustrated for the time. People, obviously craftsmen, are coming in from all over what we now call Europe. And the fourth thing you have, I said there were four things, was the infusion of religion in a powerful way. The Augustans, you know, brought religion back to England in the south. But in the north, it came back through what we used to call the Celtic, we now call the Ionan religion. These fierce um, and wonderful um, figures who became canonized all over the place. And they came down from Iona, uh, often from the west coast and across to the east. And then they continued going down the east coast and they went over eventually to the Carolingian Empire. So you've got proselytizing monks who are following in the footsteps as they see it of Jesus of Nazareth and his apostles. They see themselves as in the apostle tradition. Miracles surround them. They, they live very humble lives. They don't go in for the, the grandeurs of Rome and that sort of thing. All these things are happening. And that begins, that kingdom of Northumbria begins the idea of what became England. There it is, one entity reaching out to the whole of that part of the, of the islands. And it was further reinforced soon afterwards, a couple of centuries afterwards, by the invasion of the Vikings. Because the Vikings came a little bit to Cornwall, but they mostly came to Cumbria and Yorkshire in great numbers. First they came to loot, and then they came with their wives to settle. And of course the wives had children and they bred there and they brought an immense amount of uh, uh, momentum of place names and family names and different habits of uh, farming and so on. So the Vikings came, we have them in the north. So that gives a northern feeling to it. So at stage after stage, you find the north having a separate history. When William of Normandy, uh, William the Conqueror, who was an absolute sod, thought that the north was very dangerous because of course the Scandinavians kept coming into the north. So he adopted a scorched earth policy to the north. And if you went to the north for many, many decades, even centuries, it would be 
very little, few big settlements there except fortress settlements. There were fortresses, there were castles or fortified churches or fortresses all over the place. And so the north was looking to the south as an enemy then. And the north-south divide began very early and it's typified again when Catholicism was, um, as it were, outlawed by Henry VIII. It's the north where the big resistance is, the Catholicism in the north. It's the pilgrimage of grace and the rebellion against the south. So the north again and again is rebelling against the south. And we have to remember that it's a long way from the south in those days. The roads are very, very bad. The only way to travel is by sea. Uh, not take a line out, but so you're a long, if you're in Newcastle, even if you're in York, you're a long way from London. And the power of London, getting people up there, is uh, when, when they get there, they can be devastating because they're better armed, better fed, and so on. But it's a long way from London. So the North is developing itself as an idea, as a place, as a place of its own, with its own dialects, its own language, its own settlements its own, to a certain extent, a persisting religion that has been stamped out largely in the South. Um, the Viking dialect is heavily into it. So that in Chaucer, even in the 14th century, when he's writing about uh, people from the North coming to the South, the South people cannot understand them, because of, not only because of the accent, because simply different words being used. So on we go, uh, and then the Industrial Revolution makes the North a different place. It, the North becomes the centre of the country. For decades, it's the north of England, which is making the wealth of the country, making the pace of the country. All of a sudden, this, this small island has 35% of the world's trade. It's the world producer of this, that, and the other, whether it's engines, anything to do with engines, engineering, and so on, sets the pace and gets in the lead for a while. So they're building railways in America, they're building railways in China, they're building railways in India, as well as here, for instance. So there's that, and on it goes, and I think that, that broadly, very broadly, uh, is a history of how the North became a place on its own. Now, it isn't as neat as Scotland or Wales or Ireland, but it is a place uh, which has its own internal connections and its own internal loyalties. And I thought it was worth exploring. So that's what we do, we explore it. And if people want to take issue with us, that'll be terrific. Let's have an argument. That's good. And was there ever a prospect of the North actually being its own country? I'm thinking particularly around the time of Northumbria, could it, could it England well, have ended up time that of, In the early days, Sam Northumbria in the 7th century was its own country. Hmm. There were several countries, there was a septarchy, there were five or six. But, the North, but there was a dominant country, and that was first the Northumbria, and then became Wessex and Rafa. They're little countries, and then they sealed themselves into one country. So I was saying, it isn't as neat as Scotland or Wales hmm. or, uh, or Northern Ireland, it, uh, but it's still there as an entity. And it's rather, it's more fugitive than Scotland, you say. You, you, you know, you hit Gretna Greenery in Scotland, they all speak differently, they were killed. Just, mm-hmm. You know, they, they all speak differently, they're a nation. You go to a, they're a nation. You can't say that when you go to the train at Manchester. But we're trying to show that in many respects it is a, it is a fundamentally different place from any other in the United Kingdom. Because of its geography and location, has the North had a different relationship with Scotland than, say, the south of England has? Yes. I mean, sometimes it's been largely antagonistic, but not always. You find some of the great northern artefacts, like the Rothwell Cross, the one is just across the border in Gretna Green, when Northumbria spread just across the border. But the Scots have been a threat to the North, so the North set a guard against the Scots, not only the wall, but the castles of Carlisle on one side of the country, Newcastle on the other side of the country. And that's pressed the North into, again, defining itself against Scotland, defining itself against Scotland 
and defining itself against the South. It's interestingly muddled because in the border areas, of course, across the border, let's call it the Roman War to make it easy, uh, there are the same families on either side of the wall and people's land goes on either side of the wall and uh, their herds of cattle and their flocks of sheep go on either side of the wall. So the borders are not only a heavily disputed territory, which they are in the, in the, in the border wars for about 250 years, uh, they're also a little entity of their own. But nevertheless, the, the north of England uh, braces itself against Scotland, yes. And so there have obviously been times when the north has set itself apart from the south have there been occasions in the history where the North and the South have come together more, perhaps I'm thinking times of warfare? Yes, I mean, you put your finger on it. The great times have been times of warfare, particularly in World War I and Two, World Wars I and Two. But before then, people would come down from the North to join in the armies that are going to France because, apart from anything else, it was lucrative. And, of course, the, the um, aristocracy of the North uh, owed allegiance to the king and would, part of their task was to come down and bring knights and archers and uh, uh, soldiers to, to go out, um, usually to France, uh, to fight. We've talked a lot about the attitude of the North towards mm. the rest of the country. What Do you look at the attitude of the South towards the North and how leaders or politicians and monarchs in, say, London have tried to control the North? Well, they have. I mean, from the beginning, well, let's say from the beginning, from 1066, because before then the North was getting on very well. Then they, they have seen, they've often seen the North as something that had to be subdued. I mean, William the Conqueror and his sons thought it had to be kept in its place and uh, scorched earth and uh, cleaning out the population up there. They thought of it as a nuisance and a threat. Threat because it was a uh, base for Scandinavian, for the Vikings to come in and to then march south. Uh, I said because it might join up with Scotland when Scotland marched south. So it's seen as a threat sometimes as a buffer state, but as often enough as a threat, yes. And do you think because of its distance from central government, it's, it's been easier for people in the North to rebel, to, to kind of fight the authority, religious or secular, governmental authority? Well, I don't know whether it's been easier, because, you know, people have rebelled in the southwest mm. in this country, and as we know from the Peasants' Revolt in 1381, they rebelled in Essex and Kent and very near London, so rebellions haven't been geographically based. But I think, I don't think it's been easier. But there has been a steady sense in English affairs for a very long time that the North was a problem and it was set apart. That became uh, less so, much less so, when the Industrial Revolution came and the North became a, a cash cow, a wonderful place for people and for this country to make enormous amounts of money and become rich. That's how we became rich. And so in more recent times, with, with deindustrialization and, and the economic hardships that have come to the North. Has that, do you think that's increased the North-South divide? Well, I think the people in the North feel very strongly. It's to do with feeling as well as with fact. I think people in the North, and many people in the North, feel that we are Northern and proud of it, without being silly about it. We're mm-hmm. Northern, we're, that's fine by us. And that the South is, um, they're always getting sold short. I mean, for instance, they'll spend tens and tens and tens of millions of pounds on a garden bridge in London, mm-hmm. uh, which... I don't, think, I don't know whether you can walk across it or not, or whatever, whatever. Whereas wonderful museums like Bede's World or Museum might just be cut completely in the north of England. And as we know, the north has got enhanced problems that the south doesn't have, and that's basically basically because of a lack of investment and a caretaking. Do you have any hopes for the future of the north and how the north might develop over the next few decades? 
Well, if there were reasonable investment, the North could do very well. I mean, it does very well in certain areas when it's given a chance. But things are let go. You see, the big steel industry, part of the North, Newcastle was the only place in the world at one stage at the time where you could build a complete ship, as I say, with wash basins and beds and sheets. You send it off and it was a complete ship. There was 150 different sorts of carpenters employed. We lost all that. It needed to be guided through, which they did in Germany, they did in Holland, they did in, they did in uh, Italy. Why didn't we look after that? Why didn't we? We haven't taken much care of it. How much has being Northern been important to your own identity? Well, it's very difficult to talk about your own identity because other people tell you about your own identity. But I was very aware of this, the vastness of the landscapes of the North, and I think that that sort of thing has an influence on you. I was very aware of the way people spoke as being different from. I know you go, you, you race headlong into the, um, the cabinet of cliches, but the fact is that when I go off, people are more friendly. <laughs> Maybe there are fewer of them, they've got more time, I don't know, but everybody says that. They are. Mm. The crew that you live with are more friendly. Is that? That is quite definitely the feeling of a different history there and the feeling of a different expectation. We should wait and see if the series works. That was Melvin Bragg. The Matter of the North is set to begin on BBC Radio 4 on the 29th of August. You can also read a version of this interview in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which, as I mentioned before, is on sale now. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. A rare Tudor window panel has been stolen from a village chapel in Leicestershire. Depicting the prophet Ezekiel bearing a blue halo, the stained glass panel was created by the well-respected Dutch artist Gallien Hoon, glazier to Henry VIII. It is thought to have been commissioned during the chapel's construction in the 1530s. Experts believe that the panel was likely stolen to order. Peter Ayres of the Church's Conservation Trust told the BBC, it's not something you might just stroll across and decide you want to steal. He has labelled the crime a theft of public property, adding that the Trust is devastated by the loss of the stunning and irreplaceable panel. In other news, a new method to accurately pinpoint ancient historical dates has been identified by archaeologists. Astrochronology uses traces of solar storms, which cause a spike in radiocarbon levels, preserved in tree rings as time markers. University of Oxford researchers Michael D. and Benjamin Pope claim the technology could help tie down the floating timelines of ancient cultures. They suggest it has the potential to date major prehistoric events, such as the collapse of the Mayan civilization, the construction of the Giza Pyramid, and the Vikings' arrival in the Americas to the exact year. Elsewhere, excavations which aim to uncover a possible Nazi train filled with gold are underway in southwest Poland. A team of privately funded researchers are digging in a complex of tunnels where a train stacked with bullion is rumoured to have been hidden by the Nazis as they fled from advancing Soviet forces in 1945. Some Polish officials and historians, however, have expressed serious doubts about whether such a train exists at all citing a lack of documentary evidence and an earlier survey of the site which found no sign of a train. Despite scepticism, the treasure hunters remain hopeful. The results are extremely promising, said the team's spokesman. It's not a needle in a haystack. If it's there, we will find it. Well, we've now reached the end of this episode, but please do listen in next week 
when we'll be talking about the Great Fire of London as we approach its 350th anniversary. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.